So worship, we're going to kick this around, week two of our series, and uh, if we do that, I just want to, before, before I do that, sorry about that, uh, I want to mention two things. First is our known journal. We talk about this just about every week, page 50 of this. If you don't know what this is, uh, it is a reading plan that we put together and a place for you to take some notes on this morning's message, and then it gives you some scripture readings to follow throughout the week. If you're not a big journaler, that's cool. We also have it in a, in a pamphlet format out there if you want to grab that um, this morning. That'd be great. Second thing I want to mention is just something that God laid in my heart this morning as I was praying, early this morning as I was praying to get ready for this morning. Um, he laid a story, reminded me of something that happened this a uh, few weeks ago, actually, that uh, just really kind of illustrates what my heart is for this morning. Uh, I was walking into early morning. I mean, it was early morning before all the high school kids got to the high school. I'm going to the high school to meet with some community leaders. And it's a kind of a networking event and uh, really connecting with other community leaders and asking, okay, what can we do to make a difference in our community? If we pull all of our resources together as churches and business leaders and nonprofits, what can we really do to make a difference? And so when I approach these events, my prayer is often this. I just say a simple prayer as I'm driving to the, to the location. I say, God, I don't know who I'm going to sit next to today. These are all people of influence in our community. Sit me next to the person that you want me next to to make the biggest impact in this community. So as I'm walking into the school and I'm approaching the room where we're meeting, I sense, I begin to hear an answer, and I think and I, there's a particular individual that I've kind of wanted to engage and connect with uh, here in our community, and I open the door up and I look, and there he sits, and there's an empty seat right next to him. I'm like, yes. So I scan the room quick as I'm getting ready to walk this way. It's a huge circle, and I look over, and the opposite end of the room is someone from this church, and so suddenly the pastor in me stops. I'm like... I probably should sit there. And have you ever have these quick conversations in your mind? Like, am I simply doing this out of guilt or am I doing this because it's really the right thing? God, do you want me to go there? Do you want me to go here? I thought I heard this. And so all this is processing in a split second. I make the decision. I turn left and I go and I sit down next to the individual that's here at this church and begin to talk with that individual. We have a good time. And then the meeting kicks in. And I don't say a lot during the meeting. I'm just kind of taking in and listening. And as we're getting to the very end of the meeting... And we're talking about heroin, and heroin and, and the uh, drug addiction is pretty significant. It's something you guys hear about if you're watching the local news at all, but it's, it's a big deal in our community. And so we're beginning to kind of kick that around, and, and someone just asks, is there, and they, they name a specific uh, recovery ministry, and they want to know, is, is, does it exist here? It's a Christian-based ministry, and it's a ministry that, that, the, that the non-Christian world looks into and really respects. And they say, well, is that happening anywhere here in this community? I happen to know someone very close who's trained and running one in Mannheim. And so I put my hand up, and I say, well, I know there's none specifically here, but I know what it takes to bring one here, and I, so I'm talking all this out, and, and so the meeting ends, and sitting right beside me, this person was, that I didn't, was, didn't, wasn't really connected with a lot turns to me and says, so you know, and then we begin this whole discussion about this ministry, and here she's a pastor from another church in the area, and lo and behold, here we are a few weeks later now with this whole plan together to bring this ministry to this area, our church and their church partnering together, and I think, that is awesome how God works. Never would have expected uh, that happen if that individual had not been sitting there. I would have never been in that position to allow God to work in that way. Now, I share all that, not to talk about, there's a lot more coming about that ministry and what we're going to be doing as a church in that area. But I share all of that to say, here was my prayer this morning. You know, sometimes God surprises us. And my prayer is that I don't know where you're at as I look around this room. I know, I know many of you. Some of you I don't know. 
But look around this room. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what your heart is. I don't know what brought you here. And I don't know why you're sitting next to the person that you're sitting next to. I don't know the story behind it. I don't know if you prayed a little prayer when you came in like I did or if you just walked in because it's what you do every week. Or maybe you walked in nervous as all get out like, I'm going to church today. Are you kidding me? I don't know what it is. But here's my prayer is that God divinely placed you in the seat where he did to connect with someone around you. And more importantly, I pray that this morning we're going to push into a tough subject. And I pray that you may not necessarily see fruit, radical things happen today, but I pray that there's a seed. Here's my specific prayer, that a seed sets in your heart that begins to grow, that in a few weeks you look back and you say, wow, God did something on February 19th there in that place. That's my prayer. That's what I've been praying all week. Now, to get us there, uh, here's what I want to talk about. We have this whole thing called real life, worship in real life. So we're talking about this issue of worship. Let me throw this question out for you to get us moving. As you hear this word worship, as you look at it or see it, what emotion do you associate with the word worship? Not behavior, not activity, not, not things that we do or places that we go. What feeling do you associate, maybe, maybe you're brand new to church and you've never even, I don't know, Adam, I'm not even sure what worship is. I, what, what if you maybe kind of take a stab in the dark, what feeling would you put with it? What I have learned is I've thought about this and I've asked others, you're not all here, but I'm going to take a stab that 70% of you at least, the large majority of you, have, a, have an emotion, an affection that is somewhat positive, happy joy, peace. Uh, You may have um, celebration, praise, gratitude, something that's somewhat on the upside, rosy, sunny, bright feelings. Now, last week, okay, let's pause that, hold that there, and that's fine. Some of us are in those places. Now, last week, we talked about, we gave this definition of worship. Worship, true worship, is giving God all of me in response to all of him. So I want to pause right there. So if worship... It's giving all of me what I've learned. I've, I haven't had to live all 40 of my years to learn this. I mean, I learned this, you usually learn this pretty quick in life, that those positive emotions are only part of life, are they not? Some of you are here this morning and you are sitting in a really good place. Your hearts are overwhelming with joy and peace and all those positive things that we said, you're like, yeah, that's me, I'm good. Others of you, though... <laughs> Maybe on the other end of the spectrum. And you're like, man, you know what I had him? If that's what worship is, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm dark. I'm hurting. I'm lonely. I'm depressed. I'm angry. God, I'm not even sure what I am. I just know there is something inside of me that is not right and is not good. So if worship is bringing all of us to the table, not just a part of us, and all of us is, is both the upside and the downside of life, what do we do with this? Can worship be worship in those dark, painful, lonely, depressed positions? Can we worship in that position? Now, I think most of you intuitively know the answer, right? Most of you, I can see some of you going, yeah, you can do that. And here's why I think most of us know this. I think most of us know worship is to give worth or value, to bow to. We heard that in a little video. Uh, It's to ascribe beauty. And I think most of you, think about this. Think of the stories that you've heard of Christians that have inspired you. 
Okay, can you all find, think of a Christian story that's inspired you, whether it's, it's someone in your inner circle of life, whether it's someone that you've, maybe you saw a cute little video on Facebook, maybe it's something you saw on YouTube, or maybe it's something you, a story you read, or a movie you saw, or maybe it's something you read in history, or you even read in your Bible, and it's, that's a Christian who's inspired me to stand up and give God my all. Can you think of someone like that? Now think about that story. And here's what I've learned. I think probably there isn't a single one of you thinking of a story that goes like this. Mr. Perfect grew up in his perfect family, went off to his perfect school and met Mrs. Perfect and got married and had their perfect children and bought their perfect house as he went to his perfect job. As he came home from his perfect job, Mrs. Perfect had the perfect meal cooked for the family all to gather, or the perfect family to gather out and eat the perfect meal to have the perfect night together, to go to their perfect beds, only to get up and do it all over again the next morning. Do any of your stories sound anything even close to that? They don't, right? The stories that inspired you to, to stand up and say God is worth it, do they generally not involve some type of loss, deep pain, grief, the loss of a small child, the loss of a grown child, the loss of a mom way too early in life, the loss of a dad, the abuse that's been endured, the, the, the whatever it might be. Don't our stories inspire us to stand up and say, yes, I can live for my God. I can do that. That, it, 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 that brings this, this something out of us that says God is worth it. Don't those stories generally involve some type of grief and pain and hardship, Right? Now, the question is, how do we do it in our own lives? How do we live in a way that others look into us and say, yeah? Or how do we walk in a way that we truly worship God when the rug is pulled out from underneath us and we land flat on our face, not because we chose to, but because life just really, quite frankly, stinks and it hurts? What do we do in those moments? Now, I'm going to suggest that what worship is really all about, real worship, takes place in real life. And there's a character in our Bible, his name is Job. If you want to turn with me and look at his story, the, 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 his story, the book in the Bible is actually named after him, Job chapter 1. Now, when I was, if any of you are new to the Bible, when I was new to the Bible, I'd look at this, and you know how I pronounce this? What's this look like? Who would know this is Job, right? I, so anyway, if you're new to the Bible, that's okay. If you look at that and think, that doesn't say Job. It's Job chapter 1, page 425. It's early on in your Bible, actually somewhat towards the middle, I guess. Um, Job chapter 1. And we're going to talk about, very candidly, how real worship takes place in very real and hard life. Now, here's, I want to lay the groundwork for us. I'm not going to read it. If you're in that reading plan, you're going to read more of this story this week. So I just want to briefly touch on it, set the stage, and then dive into it. So Job, it says in the early part, you're going to read the story, he was the wealthiest dude in town. No one had more money than him. No one's business was more successful. No one's family was more. He just had this phenomenal family, this phenomenal business, and all this money. Not only that, but it also says in chapter 1 that he was blameless, had integrity, and he was very righteous. So you get this picture that takes place in Job chapter 1 of Satan, who is called an accuser. Uh, You don't see it there, but other places in the scripture. Comes before God in heaven. There's this kind of 
discourse that takes place. And, and God's talking about this magnificent man named Job. And, and Satan's like, no, God, no, no, you don't get it. He's only righteous. He's only good. He only worships you because of the gifts that you give him. In other words, he's not, he's not living for the giver. He's living for the gifts. And he wants all that stuff. And he thinks to get that stuff, he has to obey you. And so God, really, quite frankly, I don't buy it. So God steps back and says, test me. Just don't harm the man. So Satan says, okay. Now, Satan is called. He's an accuser. It says in the scriptures that he's here to steal, kill, and destroy. So he steps in and he destroys Job's life. And now what happens? I'm going to put it in a modern-day world, but a mess, four messengers show up with bad news. Bang, 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 bang. It literally says when the one finished, the next one showed up. So I'll view it like this. It's kind of like a text message. I hear messenger, I think, in modern-day terms. I got a text message. So the first text message comes in. His phone buzzes. He opens it up. And there he sees a message that, hey, Job, all of your livestock and all of those who have taken care of the livestock, there, there's these raiders that have come in, these pirates, and they've wiped it all out. All the cattle and all the, all the men, it is gone. It is over. So he's reading this, and imagine the grief. Now, that's your business. That's your livelihood. That's what you depend on. And as soon as that finishes, the phone rings. The next message shows up. Hey, Job, guess what? All of the sheep and all of the shepherd, there was a great lightning storm, and a huge fire broke out, and all of your sheep are gone, and so are the shepherds. So Job's like, oh, man. Okay, so first business venture's gone. Second business venture's gone. My livelihood, the things I depend on, are being wiped out. Next, next message pops in right away. And he says, okay, Job, I hate to tell you this, but some raiders came in and they took out all your camels and all your servants are gone. So Job's like, man, I have like nothing left. I mean, my whole business is gone. All my money is gone. Everything I've depended on for life is over. Just like that, the next message comes in and he reads it. And this one probably hits the hardest. It says there was a tornado or you think maybe a hurricane hurricane or a strong wind as this huge storm comes in and wiped your house out. And inside your home was what? Your children. Gone. Now, boom, 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 boom. History. Satan takes it all out. Look with me at Job's response. Job chapter 1, verse 20. Now, some of you are familiar with this story. Some of you know this verse well. A very famous worship song kind of spilled out of this chapter. Job chapter 1, verse 20. It says, Job stood up. So he gets all this message. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. I want to pause right here. Because what we're going to read in the rest of this message is going to sound kind of, you're going to think, Adam, is this real life? Do not miss this. Job's emotion, Job's response, he grieved. Those of you who are Christ followers, can I just speak very candidly? Sometimes we in the church don't know how to lament. We don't know how to cry. Sometimes we think that following Jesus means it's all going to be hunky-dory and I just need to push through and gut it out. No, it is okay to grieve. He grieved. He hurt. He had significant and radical loss. Now look at the rest of the response then. So in this place of grief, in this place of dark emotion, if you will, then he shaved his head. It's kind of a a ritual that that he's kind of just showing that he's in grief. He shaved his head and fell to the ground to what? There's our word. The word that we're studying last week, this week, and next week. He fell to the ground to worship. Worship literally means to bend your knee or to bow. So, I mean, it's a literal act of worship. He said... 
I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. So now, you move into chapter 2, and so here Satan is in heaven again with God, and I think God's like, I told you. I told you. I know his heart. I know who he is. He's truly a righteous man. He's not living for the stuff. He's living for me. And then Satan, the accuser again, says, no, God, no way. He is living for you because he still has his own health, something we all cherish, right? We want health. So God says, okay, take his health. Just don't take his life. So chapter 2 comes, and, and you re, you're going to read it this week. If you read the story, and he breaks out with this just gruesome disease, and his skin gets all nasty and pussy and oozy, and it's just this, ugh, and he's in pain, and his body hurts. And again, some of you can relate to that. Some of you have those, those deep, those, those, those pains and those aches in his body, and, and he has this crazy disease. And, and he, so he's sitting down in this place, and look at verse 9, his response is not quite as strong as chapter 1. I, I acknowledge that, yet it's still in the same line. Chapter 2, verse 9. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Now, men, <laughs> I would not suggest you speak to your wife in that way. We're not looking to this passage to look at communication between husbands and wives. But it's, it is nonetheless, his wife, there were some issues his wife had, and, and he just spoke pretty bluntly to her. And he says this, should we accept, look at the heart of what he says, should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in essence, it's not quite as strongly stated as chapter 1, but he's saying the same thing, is he not? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Should we not, he's basically saying to his wife, I mean, come on, can we only take the good things and not the bad things? Is not God in complete control? Is God not enough, honey, is really what he's saying? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Now, if you look at your heading of your Bible, it says Job's three friends shared his anguish. And what happens now, we, again, <laughs> I wish we could really teach this book and dive in and do it justice. We don't have time to do that. We're going to fast forward to the end. But all the in-between parts are so important to understand. So I want to give you kind of a brief snapshot. So what happens is Job has these three friends, ultimately a fourth, who sit down with him and begin to kind of pontificate and give him counsel, right? Because when you hurt, what do you want around you? Do you not ache to have some friends close by? And so these friends come in. Now, we don't know whether this happens in an afternoon, whether this happens in, in a month, whether this happens in a year, but this counsel's kind of all condensed. And what ends up happening when we grieve, when we hurt, is we begin to understand and ask the question, who is God? Who is he? And these guys do the same thing. Why would God allow this? So what we really see throughout this and we really begin to experience is, is this back and forth between the friends and they begin to address their views and their understanding of who God is. Ultimately, this entire book is a human's response to pain and suffering and who is God in the midst of it. This is a very relevant book for today as I engage people who are far from God. Who, if you're here this morning, you're at any level skeptical about who God is. I've learned that, that oftentimes when you have skepticism and you're pushing in, the number one thing that holds people back that I hear over and over and over is, Adam, you're telling me God is all-powerful and he is good. Yes, I'm telling you that. You're telling me that God's in complete control of everything. Yes, I'm telling you that. Then what do you do with pain and suffering in the world? How can God be good? How can he be loving when he allows that to happen? 
That's in essence what they're wrestling with also. In other words, they're saying, okay, so if God is who he says he is, and we have all this pain and suffering, is he really who he says he is? Is really what they're wrestling with. And so what happens is, is these friends are sitting around. They're going to go back and forth with one another, and what's going to boil to the surface are their views of who God is. Does that make sense? So what I want to suggest to you, I want to give you some of their views, and I want to talk about some of our views that I hear kicked around with who God is when in pain and suffering. I hear this thrown around a lot. So you hear things like, well, God, you know what? All suffering, this is one of the first ones you see in the book, all suffering is one of the views is a result of your poor choice. Have you ever had a friend tell you that? Well, things aren't good in your life. What are you doing wrong? Where'd you sin? Where'd you blow it? Come on, you must not be honest. I mean, let's, let's, if you're dealing with this, God's not happy with you. That's the first view that engages. So it's the first thing they, they pontificate on and they talk about, well, well, if something has gone wrong, it must mean you have a problem. I think the second thing we begin to see is what I would call a deistic view is our modern day term of this. And it's, it's kind of like, well, God, God creates and God is powerful, but then he steps back and just kind of lets it all spin. Have you ever had met anyone that maybe thinks this, or maybe you have thought this at times? So, so here, I, God's this powerful God, but he really just steps back and he's uninvolved now in life. Or other people view God as kind of the divine judge, the angry father who's not easily pleased in any way, shape, or form. Some people see God, their view of God that will surface through suffering is simply the man upstairs or the grandfather figure who sits out on the front porch in a rocking chair, and he's really fun to be with, and he's really warm, and he's really engaging, and he's really wise. But let's be honest. Grandpa's not very powerful. He can't really pull me up out of this mess. Others begin to view God as love only, as if all he is is love, as if he's not holy, righteous, just, jealous, and all. He's love only. And then we have this idea that not only is he love only, but love is defined as love is making me happy now. So if you love me, you're going to make my life good. So God is this beautiful love, and, and, it's, and all people think about is he is love. Others see God, this image that begins to surf as this grand satire play where it's like you're on a yo-yo and God's just playing with you and batting you around. Some people see him as 100% holy. We sang the song, right? Holy, holy, holy. That's not all God is. He is that, but is he not love as well? Is he not gracious and merciful? But some people see God as 100% holy, and that's all he sees. He has no room then for sinners. So at best, at very best, he merely tolerates me. doesn't love me, isn't for me. He just tolerates me. So through this pain and through this suffering, we begin to see welling up these ideas of God. So I'd ask you to pay attention as you engage God in the midst of suffering. It's going to surface in you your view and your understanding of who God is. It's one of the beauties of suffering. It's a gift that's given to us. If you look with me towards the end of the book, God's going to step in. After these friends pontificate and they talk and they, they say, well, Job, you clearly have a problem. You must be sinning. And Job's like, no, I'm not. I promise you I'm not. And, and on back and forth, there's a young friend who comes along who listens to all these older guys talk. And he understands his place and that culture. Young waits. And he finally just in a, in a little bit of arrogance rebukes them all. And then God finally hears enough of it. And in chapter 38... Now, before I read this, I want to push in with this. Remember, Job was righteous. God gave Satan permission to wreak havoc in Job's life. Job responds beautifully by falling on the ground and saying, God, you, you give and you take away. Job struggles. Now, I'm going to be honest. I struggle then. I must be very honest. And some of you may be skeptical and searching 
you're going to struggle too with God's response now. Look at verse 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the, what's he answering from? The whirlwind. What does this mean? This means it's not this gentle, warm whisper. It's not, oh, Job, how are you doing, buddy? What is a whirlwind? It's like a freight train. You hear the boom, the loud, the strong. I mean, we've had this winter has been a pretty windy winter, correct? We've had a lot of wind this winter. I've, well, I've been chasing trash cans all over the neighborhood this year, and I'm like, gracious almighty. I mean, it's, it, the wind is loud, and it, it does damage, and it, it's strong, and it's powerful. So God speaks to Job in that way. And then look at verse 2. Who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? <laughs> verse 3, I almost chuckle at. Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. In other words, pull your big boy pants on, Job, because we're going to go at this thing. And then 52 rhetorical questions spill out of God towards Job. Not only are there 52 rhetorical questions, it's like, where were you, Job, at the creation of the world? Um, I wasn't around, God. Where were you, Job, when, can you, and all this stuff. Not only that, but there's incredible sarcasm in this one. Look at, look at, verse, uh, 20, look at verse 21 of chapter 38. But of course you know all this. For you were, and this is, look at the sarcasm that God throws at this man who's been suffering. But of course you know all this, for you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced, Job. And then he hits him with truth after truth of who he is. And then it comes to chapter 40. Then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic. Do you have the answers? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. So what do you read when you see that? What do you hear when you see Job say that? I hear a guy who's beginning to understand, well, you know what? I'm actually going to skip a quote here. I hear, I hear him saying, God is God. God, you're God, and I'm not. And I recognize I stepped into a place maybe where I didn't belong. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. God, I'm sorry. I think Job's beginning to get it. Hey, hey, Job, you're not God. Now, what I find interesting, God's not satisfied with this reply. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job from the... There it is again, the whirlwind. So, so, and he says it again, verse 7, brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. And then again, he rips off these questions. He rips off this sarcasm. He rips off this strong truth. I love verse 41, verse 1. Can you catch Leviathan with a hook? This is often those who want to talk about dinosaurs. Many think Leviathan was a dinosaur. And so can you catch this great giant beast with a hook or put a noose around its jaw? Can you tie it with a rope through the nose or pierce? its jaw like a spike, and he goes on down through this, and he just asks him question after question after question, just basically telling Job, hey, Job, guess what, Job? You're not God. Now, I wrestle with this until you come to chapter 42. This is where it all begins to make sense, and we all begin to learn what it really means to worship God. God, real worship in real life. Look at chapter 42. Now, this week, I'd encourage you, 
Go this week, I'm not going to spend a lot of depth here, but go this week and compare Job's response in chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, and chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Just this week, sit down and compare the two. You're going to see a stark difference. Chapter 42 says this, And Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You ask, who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about. So now he begins to own it. He didn't own really anything in that first section. Here he's saying, I own this. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Verse 5 is a hallmark. You talk about a poster verse, a T-shirt verse, a coffee mug verse. This is one of the classic verses of the Christian faith. Verse 5, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. So I've heard about you. I had all the knowledge. I had all the information, and I think it was even accurate and right. But now, now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. And we're not going to dive into it, but he gets everything back at the end of the story. And a little little sense of humor here. (laughs) Think about what his wife, we don't know if it's the same wife till the end of the story. It doesn't tell us. But let's just assume that it is. (laughs) Job lost everything, and he's going to get it back. Well, he gets all his kids back twofold. Who had the children? The wife who told Job to curse God and die. I don't know, just sense of humor there. I, I wonder. I wonder. I've been around child rearing. It's painful. It's hard. <laughs> anyway, so this verse 40, verse 5. I knew about you. Now I see you. I knew about you. Now I see you. Powerful, powerful verse. I think this verse defines Christianity. You know, one of the things I think about often, I want to talk to those in the room that are my age and younger, the millennial generation, if you will. Generation X, some of you. I think that's, I think that's what I'm officially uh, termed. Let me talk to the younger generation right now. The older, go ahead and listen in. I want to talk to the younger a minute. One of my deep concerns about the younger generation is we don't sing songs like holy, holy, holy anymore. We are so caught up with God's love, and that is it. It's all we want to see, this loving, gracious, kind, merciful God, as though he puts up with and tolerates all kinds of stuff that the scriptures clearly say disgust him. We want God to be this warm, cozy, friendly, and and he is that. Please hear me. This is a church that stands passionate for you to know God's radical love for you. But what I'm so challenged by at times is, is Jesus' closest friend in the Bible is John. No one was closer in his earthly ministry when Jesus was here. John is referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus cared for. He was always with Jesus in the intimate, special moments. He reclined on Jesus' la- on his breast at the, as, at the end, at, at that last supper. He was close by with Jesus. He was so close with Jesus that when Jesus hung on the cross and he looked down at his mother Mary, Jesus looks at his close friend John and says, John, I trust you. I'm for you. I love you. Therefore, go and take care of my mother. She is now your mother. 
Who do you give your mother to at the end of your life to be cared for? Someone that's close with you. That John walks into the throne room in heaven in Revelation chapter 1. This Revelation, this apocalyptic crazy book. John walks in and he sees the resurrected Jesus Christ, his close earthly friend. And what does John do? On the ground, flat like dead. As soon as he caught a glimpse of Jesus, he dropped. God is a powerful, great God that blows our minds. He is, he is loving, and I fear for our younger generation that you will never grasp the depth of his love if we don't in turn grasp the beauty of his holiness. The two must run together. Else you're never going to see him as the loving, gracious, kind, merciful God that he really is. We're going to get lost in books like Job, and we're going to wade through and get all confused if we don't understand the beauty and the greatness and the power and the majesty along with the goodness and the mercy and how these two come together in a powerful way. I think Job sees it now. Maybe to illustrate this, I'd tell it this way. My grandfather um, lost his wife when my dad was four years old. So as my dad grew up and he got married, uh, my dad was the youngest of seven brothers. So they chose to bring my grandfather to live with us. So we had this little, we call it an apartment, but really it was like a 12 by 14 room in our basement, really, that was kind of scary, to be honest with you. But that's where he lived, and he stayed down there. Now, my grandfather loved jigsaw puzzles, loved them. Uh, He actually made wooden jigsaw puzzles, kind of a skill that he passed on to me, something I still enjoy doing. I love puzzles. And so what I'd always, since I've been a little boy, would remember these wooden puzzles sitting in my grandpa's room on a card table. And we'd walk in, and I remember early on as a boy, I looked to my grandfather, I'd complain to him, because I'm like, well, grandpa, there's no picture here. How do I put this together? Because as he'd make the puzzles, it was before we had color copiers and all the digital technology we have. So he simply took a picture, cut it out of a calendar, glued it on the wood, cut the thing out, and dumped the pieces on the table. So you had no idea what you're putting together. And so I remember my grandfather's response was always this. That's cheating. Can't look at the picture. That's not how you put a puzzle together. So I still, to this day, I still kind of own this. Those of you who put puzzles together with pictures, I just say you're cheating. You're not real puzzlers, okay? I'll just, for what it's worth. But what I learned is, 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 a, is just a small picture of this verse. I learned that, okay, so I knew how to put a puzzle together. My grandfather gave me all the right etiquette on puzzling, right? So you get all the edge pieces and you set them over here. You turn them all over first. Edge pieces over here. Then you set, separate the red pieces and the blue pieces. And you put them all out and you, you begin to see this thing. You begin to have an idea of what it is. Then you put all the edges together and you begin to snap your pieces in. And all the while, you know about puzzling. You know how to put it together. You even know likely what this picture is going to be, but it's not till it's all together when you stand there and say, wow, that's a car. I thought it was a house. It's truly a car. I think that's verse 5 of chapter 40. You know it. You got it down. There's no doubt in my mind, but it's not until you see it and experience it, and that's why I say this is the heart of Christianity. Let me ask you this question. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did he come as a physical man? Get an answer in your mind. Pull it into your mind right now. Even if you're brand new to church this morning, welcome. Why did Jesus come? You likely have heard someone talk about this. I was down in Lancaster this week for my birthday, and I watched a guy walking around telling us why Jesus came, shouting at everyone on the streets to turn and repent or you're going to hell. So most of us in this room have an idea of why did Jesus come to this earth. So why did he come? Most of our answers are right, and they're very good. 
but they're missing a very crucial piece. Most of us are going to answer, he came to conquer sin and death. Yes, the scriptures say he did that. Most of you are going to say, he came to forgive me of my sins. Yes, he did that. Most of you are going to say, he came to bring me from death to life. Yes, he did that. Most of you are going to say, he came to give me the, the, the Holy Spirit. Yes, he did that. You're going to go through all these wonderful things that Jesus did and miss the reality that Jesus' primary purpose for coming to this earth was to show you God and to bring you home to him. It says in Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 into chapter 2, it says Jesus came as the exact representation of God. So if you ever wondered what God looks like, guess what you need to do? Take a look at Jesus. Have you ever wondered what gets God angry? Take a look at Jesus. Have you ever wondered what God thinks about, what God feels, what God laughs at, what God, what God anything? Take a look at Jesus Christ. Chapter 40, verse 5, I think is the hallmark of Christianity. We knew these things, but now we see these things. And no, moving from knowing to seeing to experiencing is life-giving. And through this midst of suffering, Job had the right answers, and Job's heart was good, and Job was for God. But now he sees God. And he says, God, how I see you. That's worshiping God in real life. I love what C.S. Lewis, some of you know C.S. Lewis, right? He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, died, little, little trivia. He died the same day JFK did, the exact same day. Uh, most people don't know that, but it's kind of a little fun fact. If you ever catch that in Trivia Pursuit, maybe. Uh, here it is. Only in the act of praise and worship can a person learn to believe. And look at the two things he puts together. Only in the act of worship can a person learn to believe in the goodness. In other words, God is merciful. God is loving. God is for you. He wants to work and greatness of God. So not only is God wants to work, he's great. He's able to work. He's powerful. He brings these two. He's love. He's holy. He brings these two. And only in the act of praise and worship do we engage God in this way. I think in the act of worship, what we really do is we, so often when the, when the rug is pulled out, we ask questions like, why? Why, God, why? And I don't think it's all bad. But I think the bigger question that suffering gives to us is not asking why, but asking who. Who is in control? God, who are you? And at the end of this journey, at the end of worshiping God in real life, Job has an answer. Wow, I see this God. How powerful he is. Now, here's what I want to do. I've got three minutes to do it. I'll do my best to wrap it up in three minutes. Maybe four if you give me that extra minute. I want to make this practical for you. So I can preach with all this passion, and I'm sweating. and some of you see that, and that's gross, I know. But I, I want to, I want, here's the deal. I want to make this practical so when you walk out of here, you know what to do with this. So how do I, so when the rug is pulled out, and how do I worship God in real life? How do I do this, Adam? Well, here, turn with me to Job chapter 1. I want to show you the first thing that we can't miss when we talk about this story. Job chapter 1. Look at verse 4. Job's son would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. I'm not going to, this is for a whole other message what's happening here. Just hang with me and catch what happens at the end. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's what? What was it? 
It was a regular practice. Here's my heart for all of us this morning. We want to serve and worship God when the rug is pulled out, but we are never going to do it if we aren't doing it when the rug is underneath our feet. We've got to learn to build into our lives these daily, continuous practices. Sometime in our Western culture, we look out at successful people and we think lightning struck or they have this stroke of genius. That's not how successful people happen. Successful people in life happen by building habits, by building disciplines and doing the same thing over and over and getting better at it. Job built this into his life. He had a practice of consistently coming before his God and saying, is it okay with us? So I think if you're going to worship God in real life, it's important to build some kind of habit, what I call a daily quiet time. That's the language I use. In other words, every morning I try to sit down before God, either in five minutes or 30 minutes, and say, God, here I am. I'm here with you today. And I build this practice of praying to him and hearing from him in his word. So that's the first thing. You want to make this practical. Next thing I'd say, in that daily time, I want to go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, a whole chapter on suffering, a whole chapter on hardship where, where James is writing, listen, it, life is hard, but, but take joy in this suffering. Take joy in this temptation. And then look at what he says in the middle of this. Don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in heaven. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. So God is the same yesterday. He's, he's, he's who he is. He's who he says he is. And what does it say in the middle of this? Whatever is good and perfect is a gift from him. So here's what I've learned to do with this. It's so important in your life and my life to learn to live in a way that we don't live for the gift, but instead we live for the giver of the gift. And often we get these things mixed around. So what is it that you have in your life right now that is really good? What do you have? When's the last time you thanked God for it? Here's how I do this in my life. Again, don't need to do it like I do it. Do it how you want to do it. But here's how it works for me. So I have a journal. This is the journal. I use a known journal, not this exact one, but I have mine's at home. And what I do each morning I write, I write thank you. The very first thing I write in my journal every single time I journal is thank you. And then what I thank God for, you know what I wrote this week? You know what I wrote? Thank you for the sunshine and the warm weather. I love it. That's awesome. I may write other times, thank you for Chris, who's not with us today. Some of you know Pastor Chris. Thank you for his friendship. Thank you for his care here for Bethany and the people of Bethany. Sometimes I write, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for the bird I'm hearing outside the window right now. Thank you that the sun is up uh, earlier than it was six or three months ago, two months ago. God, thank you. I just learned to say thank you because I'm afraid too often when we begin to live life without stopping with gratitude on our heart is we begin to think that my life is a product of my choices and my hard work and of me. And we live for all of this stuff and we say, yes, look at the stuff I have. And then when the rug is yanked out from underneath us, we have a hard time letting go because we think it's so connected to us. So again, first thing, that daily habit of a quiet time. Then in that quiet time, just learning to say thank you. And then the third thing I'll add, it comes in verse 18. Verse 18 goes on to read this way. It says, he chose, referring to God, to give birth to us by giving us his true word. True word. John chapter 1, it says this, and the word was with God and the word was God, referring to Jesus Christ. So he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, Jesus Christ. And we, out of all creation, out of all of creation, became his prized possession. 
So the third thing I think it's so important to do is in those good times, in the bright times, in the, in the consistent habit of, of those disciplines of just stopping and saying, for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, saying, God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his love. Thank you that he came. You know what, God? I don't know about pain and suffering. I can't quite answer the question. I'll be honest. Those of you who ask, well, how can God be a good God? How can he be a good God and powerful God and still allow this to happen? I'm not 100% sure scripture always answers that very clearly, but I do know one thing scripture is very clear on. It does not mean that he's not good because he did send his son to be on the hook for our human suffering. He sent his son to pay a horrendous price to bring us into himself so that we could be his prized possession. It's so important to daily come back to that's that place of saying, God, thank you for Jesus. And I think if we can build that into our lives consistently, when the rug is yanked out from underneath us and we lose our wife or we lose our kids or we lose our health or we lose our business or we lose our money or we lose whatever it is that we lose that we're holding on to, we stop and say as Job did, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away because real worship happens in real life, life that we all live. You don't need to live long to discover life is hard. What I do is I want to end. I want to read a verse, one verse to you, and then I'm going to play a video clip. I'm going to play a video clip from a teacher, a pastor. Uh, it was from 2007. This is a pastor who kind of has discipled me from afar, if you will. I read 26 or 20 some odd of his books. Don't always agree with everything he say, but he has deeply impacted how I think and process through the scriptures and who God is. This video clip came in 2007. It is his most downloaded sermon on the internet. This is just a clip of it. It's two minutes of it. But I think it resonated with our Western world and with this message. So I want to read a verse. I'm going to play that clip, and then we'll close in prayer. Here's the verse, Romans chapter 11. I think it'll sum this up well. Oh, how great are God's riches in wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decision and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Romans chapter 11. I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. It is not the gospel. And it's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message. Your pigs won't die. Your wife won't have miscarriages. You have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. The people that ought to be giving our money and our time and our lives Instead, selling them a bunch of crap called gospel. And here's the reason it is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW? Never. They'll say, Jesus did do that? Yeah, well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful. is when you smash your car 
and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands like dead on the street and you say through the deepest possible pain God is enough God is enough He is good He will take care of us He will satisfy us He will get us through this He is our treasure whom have I in heaven but you and on earth there's nothing that I desire besides you my flesh and my heart my little girl may fail but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever that makes God look glorious as God not as giver of cars or safety or health oh how I pray that America would be purged of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and that the Christian church would be marked by suffering for Christ. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him in the midst of loss, not prosperity. God, thank you for Jesus. God, as I think about pain and suffering, I don't know the answers, why, it allow, why it's allowed. But God, the one thing I know is you care for us. You put Jesus on the hook for human misery and pain and suffering. You sent your own son to this earth to die a horrible death, separated from you, to bring us to you, to show us you, to show us your heart of compassion and mercy and holiness and, and justice and righteousness. God, may we see you fully. May we not just hear about you, but may we see you. God, I pray that everyone in here, uh, I pray that a seed was just planted in a heart this morning. Everyone in here, I pray that that seed is, is given room to grow. And God, I pray that the roots grow deep down into a place of soul satisfaction in you and you alone. Help us to be people that don't live for the gifts but live for you, that, that find you to be enough. Are you enough for us, God? I pray that, that you would echo that in our hearts and our minds. Can I specifically pray for those in this room right now that, are, that walked in here skeptical, searching, far from you, not sure they even wanted to be here this morning? Uh, God, I, no doubt when they begin to wrestle with and ask the harder questions of life and look at pain and suffering, it causes them fits and troubles and, and causes them to scratch their head. And God, but I pray that now they would see a God who suffered. They would see a God who came and died for them, a God who said, I love you too much to leave you in that position. I want to bring you home to me, to see me not just to know about me, not just to have the facts on a page, but to see me. Because when you see me, you're going to have life and have it to the full. So God, may we see you. May we repent of our sin. May we turn from that. May we, may we grab hold of Jesus Christ and trust him with all of our life. And anyone in here that's never done that, God, I pray that they would do that right now, that they would hear you speaking to them. And God, for those that are walking with you, those that, are, those that are children, your children, because of their faith in Jesus, God, I pray that we would know the security that we have in your love. We would know the security that we have in your goodness and your greatness and your holiness and your jealousy. And we would rest in that. And we would build into our lives the consistent disciplines of engaging you and talking with you and wrestling with you and, and meeting you face to face. Because all of us, it's promised, the rug is going to get pulled out sooner or later. And we're going to hurt. And we're going to grieve. And real life is going to hit us in the face. And God, how we want to be people that like Job that are able to fall on our face and grieve and hurt and ache with the deepest of pain 
but say you're enough. Naked I came into this world, naked I return. God, blessed be the name of the Lord. You are enough. Thank you for conquering sin and death. Thank you for offering forgiveness. Thank you for bringing us new life so we can see you face to face. We love you. God, and right now, just meet people. Meet people where they're at. In their hurt and their pain, meet them where they're at. And bring them to see your beauty and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.